I see about four or five guys that possibly would be in Sabbath classes, but I have I don't see any teachers. <laughs> Haven't heard <laughs> if we're you know if any of the teachers come out here and say, "Hey, we're having class," you guys go with them, okay? But uh, <laughs> otherwise, you get to stay here. And, and listen to Reg speak, and this is good. This is good. At this time, Reg Nolan with sermonette or split sermon. I'm sorry. The value of work. I like the title, sir. If you'll come. All right, we are going to. good all right okay welcome glad to see all of you who did make it back from the feast of tabernacles there are others obviously on the road or uh, for whatever reason maybe they're recuperating from all the activities of the feast oh uh, this feast was what they used to call God's vacation plan but now it's time to get back to work and that's not a bad thing in fact, it's a very good thing, for work has intrinsic value far beyond the mere fi uh, financial remuneration that it provides. There is a presumption of work that permeates the Bible. In fact, Scripture tells, has to tell us explicitly when not to work. Otherwise, we'd probably work all the time. We're not to work on the Sabbath and on the ho uh, high holy days because working is the expected norm. However, what you may not realize is just how much Scripture talks about work. Although some passages refer to the artifact of work instead of the act of working itself. Nevertheless, here's some statistics. The word work occurs 439 times in 397 verses. Works occurs 275 times in 259 verses. Worked occurs 66 times in 64 verses. Working 33 times in 33 verses. Labor occurs 105 times in 101 verses. Labors occurs 17 and 16. Labored occurs 20 times in 20. And laboring 13 times in 13 verses. So with just these two roots, these two work roots alone, work and labor, there are over 100 or 968 uh, references to it in 903 verses. Now, granted, there are some overlapping scriptures, but any way you look at it, there's a whole lot of grunting going on. All right, so obviously, with that many references, I can only cite a few, and else we'd be here until Passover, right? So, what I want then today, uh, with the um, screens down behind, just listen, because I'm, I'm going to go through quite a, quite a number of scriptures here in, in the passage, okay? I can return to them if you'd like, but uh, I'm, just, I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. Most of them are scriptures that you're very familiar with already. First, God expects us to work and models that behavior for us. 
Jehovah, our God, is a working God who created and sustains the entire cosmos constantly so that the universe behaves in predictable ways according to universal laws. It is amazingly beautiful that the laws that govern the entire universe are so elegantly simple that they could be written on a single sheet of paper, and yet they are complex enough to produce all the complexity of cosmos and the life. These natural laws are also very finely tuned, finely tuned and sensitive to the 19 universal constants so that the slightest variation in any one of these constants could have far-reaching and devastating consequences. It is our working God who keeps these constants within tolerance so that we can enjoy the harmony of the spheres. From the opening verses of the Bible to the final chapter, we see God working, or we see the evidence of his working in the artifacts of his work. Genesis 1-1, of course, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 2, 2 and 3. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had made. He blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it because he had rested from his work which, he had, which God created to make. By the way, I'm reading from the uh, modern King James, so you won't hear the these and thous and the uh, worketh and that sort of thing is in here. Uh, Revelation 22, uh, 5, and there will be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of sun, for God gives them the light, and they will reign forever and ever. So he's, he's even providing light at the end. Now, meanwhile, in between, David is praising uh, God for his works everywhere, particularly in the Psalms. Um, Psalm 104, 23 and 24 says, Man goes out to work and, his labor, uh, and labors until the evening. O Jehovah, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your riches. In Psalm 8, beautiful Psalm 8, of course. Uh, o Jehovah, our God, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings you have ordained strength because of the ones vexing you, to cause the enemy and the avenger to cease. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? Psalm 111, uh, verses 1 through 8. Praise Jehovah. I will praise Jehovah all, all, with all my heart, in the counsel of the upright, in the congregation. The works of Jehovah are great, sought out by all those who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness is standing forever. He has made the beautiful works to be remembered. Jehovah is gracious and full of pity. He has given food to those who fear him. He will always be mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works to give them the inheritance of the nation. The works of his hands are truth and judgment, and his commands are true. Standing fast forever and ever, they are done in truth and in uprightness. Now, Isaiah declares the immutability, the unchangeableness of God's work, uh, and then that concept is also echoed in Ecclesiastic. Isaiah, speaking for God, says, Yea, before the day was, I am he. And no one delivers out of my hand. I will work, and who will reverse it? Or in Ecclesiastes 7, verse uh, 13, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight that which he has made crooked? Anyone ever tried to straighten out a crooked river? It doesn't work. 
He can't even straighten out hair very well. All right, disciples, not just the 12, uh, worked. Matthew was a tax collector. Several were fishers. Other were builders, tent makers, farmers, herdsmen. Luke was even a doctor. Okay, we hear Jesus declaring overtly that both he and the Father are workers. Um, John 4, 34, Jesus said unto them, My food is to do that, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5, 16 to 19. And therefore the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought him to kill him um, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, my father works until now and I work. Okay? Because of this, the Jews sought to kill him more, but not, because he had only, not only because he had broken the Sabbath, but he had also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus said unto him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For these things he does, uh, these things also the Son does likewise. We see Jesus working, fully aware that he was being watched, even in the healing of the blind man that eventually led to the charge that was ultimately to get him crucified. Uh, this is in John 9, 1 through 7. And passing by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no man can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of that world. And when he had spoken these things, he spat on the ground and made clay from the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, uh, which is translated is sent. Um, therefore he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, we hear Jesus also praying, declaring his faithful execution of the task that the Father had sent him. This is in John 17. We read this every year in Passover. Okay, uh, John 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these words and lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all flesh so that he should give eternal life to you and to uh, to you all have given eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal, and this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you upon the earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with your glory that you, I, uh, which I had with you before the world was. So, here we see a precedent. Both the Father and Jesus has set us the example of industry. Do any of us consider ourselves better than that pair so that we don't have to work? I don't think so. Of course, there are exceptions for the elderly who have already given a lifetime of service and are now retired, for the physically infirmed who may not have the ability to work, or for the mentally deficient who may not be capable of even the simple task. But generally, any able-bodied, able-minded person ought to be working and, owning and earning his own keep, not letting pride get in the way of holding a job. In fact, one of the very first things that God did was to give man a job, contracting with him to work for six days and the rest on the seventh. Read about it in, in Genesis 2.15. 
Jehovah took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And, the, and we were familiar with all the commandments uh, um, of the six days of work, but I'll just read them, to put them into the record. <clears throat> Exodus 29, six days shall you labor and do all your work. Exodus 23, 12, you shall do your work six days, and on the seventh day you shall rest, so that your ox and your ass may rest, and the son of your handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. Exodus 34, 21, you shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Now, we have always given the emphasis on the resting part, but there's also an emphasis on the working part. Notice that the work is not merely an option. It is a command. It doesn't say you may work six days and rest on the seventh. Rather, it says you shall work six days and rest on the seventh. Ooh, that sounded very Republican coming out of my mouth. <laughs> Ooh, I feel, feel so embarrassed. Okay, all right. But God gave us the command to work for a reason. There is an intrinsic value to working and severe dangers in not working. I won't say much about the fact that we work to get paid for the wages that we need to live, for that is obvious. But it's a rather superficial meaning for the value of work. We use money as the medium for exchange for goods and services. It's a convenient way of assigning value to goods and services so that we don't have to wag around our wares. Instead of bartering a literal amount of goods and services for other goods and services, we accept currency as an arbitrary representation of the value of those goods and services. Thus, currency provides a representative convenience, but it has no intrinsic value in and of itself. However, the use of currency does encourage thievery because it's a whole lot easier to steal currency or a bag of gold than it is to steal a cow, <laughs> for example. Some people, some people may lose sight of this representative nature of money or are deluded into the belief that it actually does have value, and they begin to value money for its own sake. Indeed, some of them become obsessed with it and, buy, and build their whole world around the acquisition of more of it. This is mammon. This is the, the serving the God of money. This is making uh, a God of money so that we service the money instead of letting it serve us. At that point, we are back to working just to live. But truly, money has no real value in and of itself. Oh, that feels much better. Now I feel more like a Democrat. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, a more genuine value of work is that it helps us to define ourselves, particularly for men. A Harvard study concluded that women define themselves in terms of their relationships to others, while men define ourselves by what we do. However, this disparity is narrowing a bit as more and more women obtain greater positions in the workplace. But to illustrate, if women are asked, who are you? Their common response is some kind of relationship. For example, since they're not here today, I'll pick on everybody. Okay, yes. Um, I am Trevor's wife. I am Benjamin's mother. I am Jeanette's daughter. I am Art's sister. We know who all these women are by their unique relationship to the other person. If we ask the same question, who are you, to men, we get something completely different. And respond completely different. We respond by identifying with what we do. I teach math at Booker T. I run a carpet cleaning business. I'm a computer programmer or technician. 
I'm a salesman for XYZ Company. I work for the railroad. I keep the planes flying at American Airlines. You see the difference? You see the difference? Even after men have retired from work, we still define ourselves as a retired worker of our previous profession. I'm a retired art teacher. I, st I retired from the railroad. I'm a retired firefighter, okay? Even within the church. Now, here's something interesting. If women try to define themselves in terms of the job, there's usually a relationship component inherent in that description. For example, I'm Dr. Peter's assistant, or I'm secretary to Ms. Coleman. There's a relationship built into that definition of the job. If men try to define themselves in terms of a relationship, it still ends up sounding like a job. I am husband, I, I am a father, a husband and a father. That sounds more like a job coming out of the mouth of a man than it does a relationship. Okay? So we're still defining ourselves in terms of what we do. Even within the church, we can define ourselves by our function. I'm the pastor. I'm a deacon. I'm a song leader. I play the piano. I'm a greeter or an usher. I give messages. I run the video and sound system. For men, we are what we do. So the loss of a job is much more serious than just the loss of income. It is also a loss of worth, a loss of value, a loss of identity. This is something that many women do not understand. For if a man does not find a job after the loss of employment within three to six months, many of them will lose a sense of purpose and flounder aimlessly. Recent retirees also exhibit these same qualities. Ask any wife who's had to deal with one. There's nothing worse than having a floundering husband underfoot. There's nothing worse. Without something purposeful to do, he loses his sense of worth and of value. Restlessness, boredom, despondency, depression, death are often a result. Many men die within three days, three years after the retirement unless they find another way to occupy their time and their mind. So what function does work actually perform? Work does much more than provide a simple source of income. Besides identity, work teaches many concepts and reinforces certain attitudes. Work structures the day and fills the time. It builds self-esteem. Someone values me for what I do. It builds self-confidence and teaches patience, perseverance, humility, and delayed gratification. It exhausts one's energies so that he's too tired to get into trouble or occupy uh, his hands with his mind while he reflects on certain issues. It occupies his hands while his mind can reflect on certain issues. It gives him an opportunity to develop creativity and ingenuity through problem solving. He comes to understand more of the complex problems by seeing metaphors in work. How many times have you been at work and you see, oh, I see, I understand how this works because I'm seeing how this works in my job. There's a connection there. You see, the, you see a higher meaning for the simple metaphor that you're doing in the, in the job itself. It provides networking opportunity to create new social relationships and develop interpersonal skills. Solomon, who was the most industrious human leader that Israel ever had, working as king, builder, philosopher, judge, teacher, preacher, and writer, had many observations about work in the Proverbs and the Ecclesiastic, but most of them were rather negative because they were talking about the vanity and the futility of work, um, and they can be somewhat depressing. But 
of what he was essentially saying. I work, I work, I work, and what do I get out of it? Uh, what is what profit does it have, give for me because as soon as I die, it's going to pass on to a, a child or whatever who may squander it immediately. So there's um, a lot of uh, Solomon's words were, were somewhat depressing. So I'm going to focus on his positive observations. Um, Ecclesiastes 2.10 says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was, all, was my part of all my labor. So the joy was the part that he got out of the labor. He took great pride in what he accomplished and a joy in, in seeing it done. Ecclesiastes 3.13, also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good, goodness of his labor. This is the gift of God. And this is a very appropriate, this is a very true statement as far as I'm concerned. Ecclesiastes 5.12, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he's little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not let him sleep. Because he's worried about who's going to take it from him, or how can he make more. By uh, Ecclesiastes 10 and 18, by slothfulness the building decays, and through the lowering of the hands the house leaks. So you don't keep up your place it's going to fall into, this, uh, into decay. Uh, Proverbs 20, 11, Even a child is known by his own doings, whether his work is pure or whether it is right. Proverbs 10, 16, The labor of the righteous tends to life, but the uh, fruit of the wicked tends to sin. Proverbs 14, 23, In all labor there is gain, but the talk of the lips tends to only the poverty. Proverbs 18.9, also he who is slack in his work is brother to the great destroyer. Proverbs 21.25-26, the desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands have refused to work. He covets greedily all the day long, but the righteous gives and spares not. So we see work everywhere. The, the, the virtues of work are expounded throughout Scripture. In fact, they're even used in parables. So remember, there's a parable of the talent. I'm not going to cite it here for you, but it's Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. And there's also the parable of the 11th hour laborers who are hired at the last minute, if you will. They still are working. Um, Matthew 21 through 16, if you want those references. Paul had a very strong attitude toward work. In fact, he was such a strong advocate of work that he championed and championed the independence that it gave him. He reminded his congregations of that more than, on more than one occasion. He believed in personal industry so much that he even argued that if those who did not work, should not eat. That's pretty strong. Okay, let's look at some of those references. Uh, I've got four here from Paul. 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 11 through 13. Uh, even until this present hour, we both hungered and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And we labor, working with our own hands. See, he didn't take, the, the, uh, take up the communion or whatever for, for his personal need. He worked on his own. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world, the offscarring of things until now. Ephesians 4.28, let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which are good, so that he may have something to give to him who needs it. 
1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 10 through 12. And indeed, you do it toward all the brothers who are in Macedonia, but we beseech you, brothers, that you abound the more and more, and that you try earnestly to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your hands as we commanded you, so that you may walk becomingly toward those outside and that you may uh, lack nothing. In other words, appear busy to those around you who are outside the church so you don't defame not only yourself but the members of the congregation as well. You don't want anyone saying, that's a bunch of deadbeats over there. Okay, Second Thessalonians 3, 7 through 12. For you yourselves know that you ought to follow us, for we did not be, behave ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread freely, but we worked with labor and travail night and day so that we might not be heavy on you. Not because that we ha do not have the authority, but to make ourselves an example to you, to imitate us. For even as we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone would not work, neither should he eat. For if we, uh, if we hear that there are some of you who walk disorderly among you, not working at all, but being busybodies. Now we command and exhort those who are, who are such by our Lord Jesus Christ, that they work with quietness and eat their own bread. But there's a spiritual dimension to work as well. The importance of industry is not limited to physical labor, but also includes the spiritual work of righteousness as well. Granted, Ephesians 2, 10, uh, 8 through 10 assures us that by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we are for we are created... For we are his workmanship created in Christ unto good works, which God has ordained that we should walk in them. And Ephesians 4, 11, 12 tells us the purpose of our work. Um, truly, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So, we are not to be working for some crown of gold, but for the edification of one another. Although we are promised a reward, we must, must not be working for the reward, or our labors are in vain. Working for reward is spiritual vanity, as if we could earn our passage into heaven. That's ridiculous. Working for a reward indicates that our hearts are not right, not circumcised in love, but filled with greed. Working for reward is like wanting the biggest crown or the chief seats or the finest robe. Working for reward betrays one me-centered attitude instead of an other-centered love. It is spiritual greed, and it's empty. Rather, work is its own reward, doing good, helping another, bringing someone to know Christ. Such things are good unto themselves. We shouldn't need an incentive of heavenly reward to do them, for they are an end unto themselves. And against such, there is no law. Work is an affirmation of life, for it is the activity of the living, as Solomon observes in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 9 and 10. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your life, of your vanity, which he has given you under the sun all the days of your vanity, for that is your share in this life and in your labor which uh, you labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work, nor plan, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave 
where you go. Work is its own reward, done for the sake, done for its own sake without an eye on the prize. As Solomon says, therefore I, I have seen that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who can bring him to see what shall be after him? So now, be happy, go work. 